Thanks everybody for joining us. This is episode seven of Cultivation Corner. My name is Jeffrey and I am with Sean of Kismet Farm. Kismet Farm is a hemp flower and cut flower farm uh, located in Rochester, Vermont. And I will let Sean take it from there uh, in terms of giving himself an introduction. Sean, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks Jeffrey for having me. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Um, hey, I'd much rather be there in person with you so we can vibe together. But I, in this day and age, I'm glad that we can at least have this conversation. Hey, I appreciate that. Someday soon. We'll get there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, you know, I also, you know, just want to thank, you know, everybody, you know, out there fighting the good fight and just comment on what an exciting time it is to be involved in cannabis. Um, wherever, whatever state you're in, um, it's changing so fast and I feel very fortunate to be alive and also to be, you know, I also would argue there's a, a, a revolution in farming that's happening right now with regenerative agriculture. So just to have those two combine at this time and place is just, we should all be very fortunate. Um, and also want to thank before we start, I think all the elders, um, I think you know, this industry, I think we all need to acknowledge that this industry is built on the backs of those before us. And through this conversations, we always show appreciation to them because there's some still in jail, but just incredible amount of cannabis knowledge that the underground has made that um, big industries are just take, taking from us. So I, I just want to just show my appreciation to those that have come before. I love it, man. Thank you for that. All right. I really it. Awesome. Yeah. And again, thanks for, thanks for having me. So um, yeah, let me know how I can help. I'm glad for all those that are here listening. Um, I'm an educator. So if, you know, if I can't help people in this short time we have, I'd be happy to help people afterwards. Let's start with a little introduction, uh, a little bit about yourself, maybe your business, how people can find your business, what you guys do, that kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah. So we're Kismet Farm. We're out of Rochester. Uh, I'm the farm manager. My wife, Megan, is the owner. Um, yeah, we, as, as you, as you kindly mentioned, um, we, most of our business is cut flowers for wedding and events. Um, we got into the CBD market when that, when we were allowed about four years ago, um, we were selling hemp primarily bulk to wholesalers at that time, and then started to phase into higher quality flowers. So we have less quantity um, higher quality, um, just trying to showcase um, some of the flavors that our farm can produce and some of the soil that we've been building over the years. Um, I come with a background um, both in the medical market in California, where we, I lived before moving to Vermont, um, and then was involved with the uh, dispensary medical market here in Vermont. Um, so we have that experience. And then once CBD came online, um, we've been doing that. So you can reach us at Kismet Farm Vermont um, at gmail.com or as email after the show, or you can see us our website at kismetfarmvermont.com. Um, uh, like I said, we're, we are booking for events um, for flowers as well as um, hemp sales. Awesome. And are you on social media or what's the best way to find you guys? Yeah. Oh, yes. My wife manages our Instagram. That's uh, Kismet Farm Vermont. Yeah, thank you. I'm not, I'm not fully um, on the gram yet. 
I but I'll get there. I'll get there. It's, it's important for uh, us to make sure that all of you guys uh, get your info, you know, info out there. Make sure um, because there's a lot of people who aren't uh, familiar, and you know, this is going to be a podcast, and um, it's just important as a trade association. So thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. Sweet dude. So listen. Um, wow. So you said started in California, spent time in medical dispensary. Um, can you take us back a little bit? Um, was that Prop Two Fifteen about? So what are we talking yeah. about? Because California went through different, uh, different, um, right, waves yeah, of regulation themselves. So, yes, yeah, two fifteen is what we're talking about. Um, I mean, I guess the journey started. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm. I grew up right outside New York City, and I think my journey started when I moved to New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I came and I met not to bore people, but met some some serious um, elder organic, you know, big guano growers um, that were producing strains like Elvis and some of the original AJ Sour stuff that came out. And so I just kind of felt like I was handed this knowledge at a young age. And um, some of the growers at the time were trying to write books about organic cultivation. And I was fortunate enough as someone who was attending college at the time that they're like, hey, man, can you edit our book? So I just kind of been handed um, an incredible wealth of knowledge that took me to Alaska for a little while and saw what the Matanuska Valley folks were doing. And that's a lot. That's a whole nother conversation we could talk about. Um, And then from there, I moved to Northern California, where we felt, you know, like we we didn't need to be criminals. Um, And 215 allowed us to uh, at least start dabbling. And I, you know, my wife and I say that, you know, we got our unofficial PhD while living there in cannabis growing um just the entire community the amount of shared information everybody trying to push the industry and just hoping everyone just doing better and better and in not only their yields and their quality but also in their practices and their sustainability so um that took us to vermont um you know out in northern california i dabbled around with the u.s forest service so i was able to transfer to the rochester uh office where um, I was able to get into the medical dispensary um, up in Montpelier. This is back when it first started. Um, fortunately, I had a f- two friends that were working there and I got in as a grower's assistant and learned a lot from that experience um, and then sat patient um, until CBD came and we, we applied the first year. Um, I also did apply for two medical dispensaries, both rounds that went um, after Shane um, had yep. gotten his um, VPA got theirs. Um, I applied for the third and fourth round with a group of people. So I know a lot about that process that I can elaborate on. Um, and then we stepped into the CBD market and that's what we've been doing. And we're trying to, um, showcase what, what we can do and, um, try to pr- try to bring the best product forward. That's awesome, man. That's quite, it's quite a rich journey. Yeah, it's it's feel like it's just starting. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think that um, I, I like. I once heard someone say that um, the being a cultivator is almost a mindset. It's not necessarily a skill. Um, and and I think you embody that really sort of uh, open mindset that no matter how good you get, you know, there's always room to improve. Oh, and I, I agree a hundred percent. I love that comment because. Yeah. You know, I think we're all in the mindset of, you know, just go into the grocery store and buy, you know, the three bottles that they tell you to buy. Um, 
And that's one way. But I think once you open the door <laughs> or fall, fall down the wormhole, as I say, <laughs> uh, you're right. It, it's not a thing you do. It, it's a lifestyle you live at that point. Wow. So take us back to Northern California for a moment. You mentioned community and the atmosphere. Um, yeah. Do you see some of that in Vermont? And I want you to stay in California for a moment, but that's that's interesting. Yeah. Like, is, is there a connection there at all for you? Or? That's a good question. I like that. Well, in California, you know, I, you know I, I, we live in a rural place here, but it was really rural out there. You know, right on the edge of Humboldt County and Trinity County, Siskiyou County, that area. It, it's incredibly uh, remote. I mean, when you listen to public radio out there, it's called the state of Jefferson public radio because they don't they don't feel like they belong to California or Oregon. They're just so far out there. So it's the state of Jefferson. Um, anyway, with that said, everyone just supported each other as, as I think rural communities do here in Vermont, you know, like you use an example, like Irene or something. I mean, there's not, you're right. This is the best place to be stuck where your neighbors will help you out. But um, California has so many years ahead of us in their cannabis knowledge and, and experience that, by the time I stepped in there, it was very, you know, it was all figured out. Prop 215 made an explosion. Um, well, you sort of saw it ramp up, right, um, in the, you know, earlier before that. And then they cracked down, camp cracked down on that. And then you saw, like, kind of a, a lull in the action. But then 215 yep. opened the door. <clears throat> 215 you- loud neighbor, you know, loud, like, in the town that I lived in. Yeah. Where all the neighbors in the town could share licenses. And you could have a communal garden that we could care for. Um, so it allowed it allowed it allowed the experience of growing on a large scale, but it all but all that community input and protection um, together. So it's not just one guy doing it; it's a community kind of supporting each other. So you come to Vermont, where I feel like it's so taboo when I first moved here to talk about cannabis, and now you're slowly now you're seeing with legalization this weird gray space we're in without retail, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're going to see it's not there yet where growers are supporting each other and are willing to have those conversations because we're still dealing with a a gray market where producers can't um, come out of their shell and say, Hey, this is what I do. And I want to have a family and this is what I do as a legal thing. So I don't know if I answered your question about that connection between Vermont and California, but I think, I think the groundwork is there. The, the love of neighborship is there and wanting to help each other, but we're still in that weird space where people still want to be quiet. I understand that. And for maybe Sean, for those who don't know, I think that you did touch upon the connection. Um, But for those who don't know who maybe aren't quite as familiar with 215, that was what, uh, at the state level, 99 plants, and then each county had control. Just break that down for a moment legally. Yeah. Yeah. So the feds set the limit at 99 or 100, right? So Humboldt, Humboldt just being who Humboldt is, we're like, all right, well, if the feds are going to say 100, we're going to let you do 99. Um, now that morphed over time, I lived in Siskiyou County, where they went with a plant number approach. So you had people growing six plants per prescription, but there's no size limit. So that became, okay, how big can we get these things? Um, you know, how big, how much can we get off six? And then you can get your neighbors as doctors were more willing to 
give licenses, you saw it explode. And next thing you know, you had community gardens um, because you can one or two growers could grow for as many licenses, as many prescriptions as, you know, there was no limit set. So um, my, most of my experiences in the hills of Siskiyou County, um, like Salmon River and Scott River area, and just incredible ingenuity and in how people were legal so they could have their families, but also really walk that, just really be able to um, produce under the law in crazy ways. Humboldt, it's like, we'll do 99, we'll do it small, we'll do it inside because we're in the fog belt, you know, out there. But, you know, it just, it was really cool to see how the, the different counties, um, the growers approach the laws differently. And did they have issues with um, corporate cannabis back then? Or what I'm, what I'm hearing, at least maybe regionally, it was different. So maybe like Northern California was a little bit of a tighter community. Or did you guys also have, say, the Cureleaf? Were they around back then? No, we left, we left California maybe like 17 years ago. So um, it, wreck, you know, that, that wasn't on the horizon when I was there. Gotcha. That, that, that we didn't deal with any of that. Now, shout out to Philo Farm, my good friends out in Mount Shasta, um, where they live, their county didn't even want them. They, they um, are banning wreck cannabis. So they're only allowing medical licenses to exist there. So you have some counties still that haven't have, you know, they're not allowing wreck to happen, but it's all over the place and how the counties are doing, dealing with it differently, depending, you know, on how, uh, you know, how your politics are. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, rec is, or their adult use is prop 64. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not familiar with any of that since I, since I moved, I've just been focused on Vermont. Well, uh, moving away from California, we do know that, uh, you know, they, they were recently what they, they received a hundred million dollar bailout their, their legal cannabis market. So I, don't, I think that they have a lot to figure out out there. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah, that is, man. I mean, I feel like Vermont, we have it so easy with how little amount of people we have. I know that's easier. I mean, I know we're flooded by, by tourists. So that changes the numbers and the market dynamics, but, um, it, we, we have an opportunity here to really do something special with how small we are. So speak to me about uh, Kismet uh, for a moment. So that's all full sun hemp? It is, yes. Yes, full sun hemp. We started originally in greenhouses. Um, we have developed our own strains, which ironically I've seen for sale um, in downtown Winooski now. Um, uh, just through friends of mine, it's made it to the market, but yeah, we have a strain that works. So we don't need to be in the greenhouse anymore. Yeah. Full sun, um, up on the Hill, 1600 feet. So surprisingly, uh, we have a strain that finishes up and tests really well. And that's what we're producing now. Awesome. And what do you, what, uh, cultivars do you, grow, do you guys grow for hemp? Um, and do you do any breeding in that space? Yeah. Yeah. So we've, We've been breeding for the last four years. So we have a strain. Uh, I, I'm not the biggest, say, basketball fan, but it's just due to the phenotype, I had called it the LeBron. It just reminded me of how, <laughs> when I was a kid, it just reminded me of this Michael Jordan poster where he had these arms out really wide. It was called Wings. And this plant was just incredible at what it could do, like, horizontally. So I just called it LeBron, and, it, and it's kind of stuck. 
But yeah, it's a cross. We started with the original box strains and the auto two strains that came out when, if anyone knows, when they first started growing hemp, that was really all that was out there at the time. Um, and then we quickly saw the move from the sativa phenotype to the broadleaf varieties. And then, you, and then, so I got a hold of some cherry cobblers and cherry wines. And then we just started um, crossing. And through the years, you know, doing some back crosses to the cherry wine, um, we've really found a variety that, that has a great flavor, tests, tests really high, and um, comes up as, um, as, ne- as, as, as zero on the THC. So we got a strain that's got oh, very, wow. very low THC. Um, produces well in our climate. Although I will say, I can't say much. I, I can't lie that last year we got crushed by the frost. We got crushed. I don't think you're the only ones. Oh, we, we, we got saved by CBG. We have a CBG buyer and we harvested that in mid-September. That strain comes down super early, the white by Oregon CBD. Right. And that came down. So we were able to meet that, that merchant. Um, but our CBD was crushed. Luckily, we, we did well the year before too continue our tincture production yeah so do you mostly um sell hemp flour or do you process it like many people do or turn into products or what's your yeah output? yeah 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 we turn them into products um on kismetfarmvermont.com you can see we you know we're we're cert we, you know we're certified organic i know a lot of people are um you know we're, we're trying to provide a different product i know vermonters you know have been grown up in jersey and california and alaska you come to vermont and you know, it's like, oh, well, I'm organic too, right? Vermont's got the organic standards. So we're nothing special, but um, we really are trying to create, you know, a new guard, a new farming um, vision, you know, that's, that's not ours. It's obviously from what we read and the people we listen to out there. And I could elaborate on some of them, but, you know, really trying to take this special plant that's kind of come across, you, you know, that humans have taken across the globe and really trying to produce it in a way that um, is different than growing corn or soybeans as, as big ag wants to, wants to tell us and really showcase um, the highest genetic expression we can of these um, sacred plants. So how do you guys uh, cultivate your hemp outdoors? Is that um, regenerative? Is that a similar cultivation uh, methodology that you'd use for um, cannabis in the future, if allowed? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as someone who does cut flowers too, I'd say growing hemp's pretty easy in a regenerative no-till system. Oh, shit. Um, oh dude. So easy. As compared to other things that, you know, we grew, we've grown vegetables for year decades. We've, you know, we, we do the cut flowers. Cannabis is so easy to do in a no-till system. I mean, I'd love to hear, you know, devil's advocate on that, but, um, once we started getting into cover cropping, and um, the botanical teas that we use and really trying to hone in on what the bottlenecks are of our soil because everyone's got a unique soil. I know Vermont as a whole, we can argue has certain soils, but when you really start to hone in on what your soil has outside um, and figure out those bottlenecks, you really can unleash um, the potential of your, of your property. So yeah, we've been working on that. Um, we're, heavy, we're, we're heavy believers in soil testing but we're also heavy believers in amending with products when possible, what we can find around. So we do a lot of, we grow a lot of our own alfalfa. We grow a lot of our own comfrey as, as, as you do as well, which is pretty cool. 
make sure it's the right cultivar <laughs> so it doesn't take over your property. Um, we grow a lot of our own fertilizers that we mow down. We ferment with our own microorganisms and feed that. So we're really trying to do the no-till, heavy cover cropping, um, and botanical and biological teas to really um, be our nutrient base up on up on the farm. So, what is what is no-till? What is regenerative? Break that down yeah, for a moment a in your question. mind, and 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 why? Why why are you guys yeah. going that direction? I thought it was funny because I've been to some regenerative cannabis conferences because I just love geeking out on this stuff. And I just think we're like right on this horizon of incredible information if you're ready to listen. Um, and again, that's not to mock anyone, any chemists out there that are, that are hydroponic. Um, I, have, I have absolute respect for the chemical side of things. As someone who's science trained, um, I totally get it. And it does take a little bit of a chemist mind to get into the soil testing as I'm a big proponent of also. But with that said, um, regenerative, regenerative agriculture, which I think even people at these conferences have a hard time defining is just in my mind to break it down is leaving the land in a better place than when you found it. So if anyone's walked through the forest and knows what forest soil looks like and that fluffy, beautiful top layer, um, that's what we're striving for. And, and a lot of these soil organisms that, that I'm reading about don't get, they don't exist where there's high disturbance. That's not to say that there's numerous other soil organisms that do well in tilled systems. Not, I, I totally understand. And for weed management, I totally understand tilling, but as far, if you were to just think of a soil that's not tilled, and just layers and layers of biomass and plant matter and, and teas that you can add to it. You just develop, you just allow those microorganisms in there, especially the fungi, to establish and grow. And that's what's gonna make your soil, that's what's gonna make your plants have to work less to produce the product that they genetically are designed to produce. You, you, can produce, you can produce plants in crap soil as humans can live on McDonald's. It, it can happen. But when, it, when everything's in, in step with each other, when plants that have evolved with these bacteria and fungi over millennia, when that is allowed to be established in a no-till system, because you don't get a lot of those communities stabilizing in a, in a high disturbance till situation, you can, that's when you can really start seeing disease suppression and see the, the maximum benefit. So regenerative is leaving it better than you found it. That's not to say that tilling is going to ruin anything. But when I leave my land that hasn't been tilled and has only been amended and layered, I'm really leaving it with topsoil that only trees could have produced, you know? Trees, leaves falling, mineral mining, when they drop those leaves down and produce that topsoil, um, that's what's going to save us. That topsoil, that thin layer is what humans need to grow the bulk of their crops. So if I can only help that process up, knowing it does take millennia, but if I can add my own amendments, my own biomass to my, to my beds, um, I'm hoping to leave it better than I found it. And I think regenerative now has to do a lot with climate change. You know, we all know that tilling um, 
it, it does work. It puts a lot of oxygen into the soil. It gets that um, break, that decomposition cycle really revved up, which leads to a lot of carbon dioxide going into the air. So you're looking at a regenerative system now where you're not tilling, you're sequestering carbon, and that's a whole other podcast topic, sequestering carbon. Um, and you're seeing um, less disease and um, you know that soil health to plant health uh, magic that we're striving for. So it doesn't sound like in your mind, this is necessarily a niche sort of idea. It sounds like it's a larger movement. I 1000% do because Absolutely. cannabis can grow above most weeds. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, the tilling is mostly just, hey, we want to get rid of the weeds. We want to get rid of the grass. Um, we want to start fresh. Um, cannabis grows above a lot of that. So if you can start thinking about how the plants around your cannabis crop can only help you through cover cropping and nitrogen fixing and, you know, fit, you know, using plants that will address what your soil tests say you need. Um, I, I see that being the mainstream only because it, it's working smarter, not harder. Who wants to throw a bunch of um, who wants to throw a bunch of blood meal on their property if they know they can get it with a few cycles of clover rotation? You know, I, I think that window and that knowledge is going to be the mainstream. And is this specific to outside? Can you bring this inside as well in your mind? Have you guys brought it inside? That, um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love that topic, too, because I think those are two separate conversations because I do have the outdoor mind because I just love the the thought that millions of years have gone by and have created the soil in front of you that you can like analyze and manipulate slightly, but then you have the indoor environment where I would argue 99.9% of people are bringing in soilless media. And what I mean by soilless is mostly a, a, a peat based, maybe some aggregate aerations like perlite or pumice, and then a, a compost, maybe a 20 to you know 30% compost. Now that to any soil scientist, that's not soil. You know, that's, that's, that's soilless mix or soilless media. So when you talk about trying to bring outdoor systems inside, you have to understand that they're totally different. And when you look at soil testing of your outdoor soil versus your indoor soilless mix, which I recommend you do, you have to interpret it completely differently, as maybe many of our listeners know. So because without that clay colloid, because in, in, nobody inside really has a lot of clay, and that's really where all your nutrients are bonded to that clay colloid. So when you're inside versus outside, um, I like to say I could bring techniques inside from the outside, but it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's its own thing. It's its own thing. So with that said, I still agree with no till inside. I don't follow right now because I've, I've done it. I don't recommend cover cropping until you have a really good IPM program. Because if you cover crops, it's just another habitat for these critters to hang out. Um, But I do like the idea of, yes, if you could bring those techniques inside, it could work. But I don't see how tilling inside really works. Um, I think a living, very, very active soil can take anything you top dress and get that down into the rhizosphere if that makes sense i don't think tilling inside is necessary um, i'm a huge proponent of beds as many of our listeners may know um, yep. 
take, take, take two clones of the same plant, put one in a pot with a ton of soil, put one in a small pot. We all know that we all know what's going to happen. Um, I think, you know, you don't, we all know that more space is better as long as you can manage the, the moisture in those soils, a bed undisturbed, untilled, top dressed with amendments that only when needed to address deficiencies um, is the way to go inside on, even on a mass scale. I mean, we're seeing it, we're seeing it now, you know, we're seeing in California, we're seeing it in, in Canada, large facilities with living soils and organic IPM techniques. So it's not that far out um, as the mainstream, if you ask me. Now, it sounds like the container, now what you're saying is <clears throat> individual containers versus larger beds for, for growing plants, right? And the individual yep. container would be one per plant, one at one to one ratio. Is that is that more than about enough, you know, uh, um, media for the roots? Is there more that's happening there in that container to multi-plant bed comparison when you're speaking in the context of regenerative and these other well, parts? Yeah, well, well, I think you're the way the way I boil down gardening, not to get too philosophical, is that if the plant it has, if the plants can go through its genetic protocol in the least stressful manner, the better. So if it's in a soil where it doesn't have to get root bound up, that's one stress you've taken away, right? If it's in a soil that has the right moisture, then you've taken that stress away. If it's got the right pH, you've taken that stress away. Now, a plant can grow in all these situations. It can root, it can go root bound and it can start circling its roots all around and it could start cranking out, you know, exudates to try to bring in as many bacteria as it can to produce that fix that, that, um, night, the, um, nutrient cycling. But when you put it in a big bed where the moisture is right, because I know a lot of people that start growing in beds and they can't get the moisture right. And they're just growing anaerobic beds and they wonder why their plants aren't growing. But if the moisture is right and you allow those roots to go wherever they want and access water when they need it and dry spaces when they need it, maybe come up to the surface to grab a little bit of that top dress and some of those um, soil organisms that you maybe threw some compost or worm castings on, um, just allowing the plant to do what it wants. And if we even break down, break it down by cultivar, I mean, we know some cultivars will grow. They won't grow um, much of a taproot, you know, even from seed. They're just more lateral um, strains. We know some will mine deep and, and um, accumulate heavy metals in their leaves. Like we, even strain to strain is different, but allowing a plant to um, have as less stress as possible. Um, and I think a box or a bed is one of those things. Um, it just, it's just less, there's less limiting factors involved. So when someone says living soil, does that have a clear definition to you? Great question. Living soil to a soil biologist might vomit because what they're thinking as soil is something that has sands, silts, and clays, because that's what soil is and whatever organic matter from millennia of dead decomposing organisms, that's soil. So now we say, okay, we're going to call this, you know, this perlite peat compost thing that we just mixed together or sat in a warehouse in a bag. We're going to call that living soil, um, would make a soil ecology, or, you know, soil scientist vomit. But anyway, so when we talk about living soil, I think all we're meaning is a soilless media, which 
which enables a lot of aeration because we know cannabis roots love air, love air, um, and giving the nutrients, most of us in a, in giving nutrients that the living back, the living organisms in your soil or in your compost can break down over time and provide the nutrients to your plants. So, I mean, compost in itself is nutrient depending on the compost you get. That's a whole nother podcast in the quality of compost. Um, and that gets me into soil mixes where people are like, just give me a soil mix. And like, I want a living, living soil mix. G- give me a mix that works. It's like, okay, well, first off, what's the strain? Second of off, what's the compost you're going to put in there? Is it from, you know, the, the, the mega farm down the road? Is it, is it from a, someone who's got tests on their compost? Like there's, so, so not to stray from what you said, living soil means, I, I, I think what we mean and what I mean by it is it's heavily, it's heavy in its biological component. Lots of living organisms in there, probably mostly bacteria. If you're good, maybe some fungi in there. Um, but it's really not a soil. It's more of a soilless medium. And I'm hoping, and I think that's kind of been morphed into adding organic amendments that these organisms can eat and thrive. On. That's an interesting answer. Um, I mean, as we, as everyone joining us knows, um, you know, if you're, if you're sort of uh, a grower yourself, Sean, as you know, um, you mentioned how uh, beds large scale are becoming more popular for the small home grow, right? The accessibility, whether through purchasing product on the shelf, living soils becoming, um, you know, more, um, more in the mainstream. What do you say? I mean, you hear it more often. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a buzz. It's a buzzword like regenerative. And I'm glad that you kind of halted on that word because I I think a lot of it is sort of being worked out, but I I do think living soil it's yeah. A lot of it, I think a lot of it's coming online and I think, you know, personally I I, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, But what is living in that soil can be all over the place, you know, depending on your watering, especially um, your nutrient management, you know, there's, there's no standard living soil that works for cannabis. I think, I think um, that all is going to be worked out. I think is as the science sort of peer reviewed science catches up with what I call bro science, because it's been so underground for so many years that, They're like, well, there's no scientific proof that that works. It's like, yeah, because the scientific world hasn't caught up to the industry. So, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, KNF and Korean natural farming for those that know what I'm talking about. I mean, and that's been just passed down from word of mouth from through thousands of years from farmer to farmer. Yet, yeah, I understand that we don't understand it on a scientific level, but I know now that MIT is now studying IMO. And what IMO is able to do and how it's able to suppress diseases on a large scale on these big um, wineries or vineyards. So I, living soil is such a vague term. I see companies just putting it on their bags to make a buck. But to me, anything that's been sitting in a warehouse or in a hot parking lot in a plastic bag wrapped up on a pallet, um, is it living do you have to add more life to it? I, I don't know. I'm a huge believer in making my own compost. I think wherever you get your compost from should be someone that knows what the heck they're doing. And that, that to me is living soil. It's that compost based soil with a little bit of peat, 
a little bit of aggregate for aeration. That's what I think the industry is calling living soil. Um, what is your IPM management? Um, can you not foliar? Is foliar part of this routine? Um, can you unpack yeah. some of that? Yes. Um, I don't have, yeah, I, if you, if you as an indoor grower have the luxury of there being no pests outside your house, maybe you live in a city, maybe you live in Burlington, Montpelier, and there's not a ton of pests that are airborne. Um, you may not have to worry about it, but anyone that's been doing this for amount, you know, a significant amount of time knows that life finds a way it's going to find a way in. And these plant, these pests are smelling. They, they have receptors that are way beyond our comprehension and they find this stuff. So whether I see bugs or not, I'm constantly being vigilant about it. Having worked in the medical dispensary, I mean, it's just like ingrained in my head that I need to make sure that the immune system of my plants are raging and, and ready to fight off anything that's there, but that I am also able to give um, foliar applications so that in my mind, I feel like if anything made its way in, that it's not able to make a cozy place and have lots of babies. So I, I'm, you know, if, if you want to get into specifics, I'm a huge fan of aloe. I grow my own aloe just as an immune booster, um, big proponent of OHN. If you guys are KNF people, um, be happy to, to send some, some of you some OHN. I made a whole bunch of it. Maybe just spend a uh, second. Um, yeah. just maybe just, you know, what is that acronym even? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean, I'm I, I, yeah. I, mean, I, I hate are... to say it. I, mean, I didn't come up with the word, but it's called Oriental Herbal Nutrient. It's what the KNF and the Jadam School of, of Farming came up with. And it's a, uh, it's, it's like a ginger, garlic, angelica, licorice root, and cinnamon concoction that takes about six months to make. But it's that, it's that immune boosting, um, bad pathogen suppression, uh, insects don't like it. It's one of those things you got to find. I'm trying to, I mean, I think a lot of us are trying to find that blend where the plants love it, but the bugs hate it. Like, how do you find that blend? Do we put Sufoil X all over our plants that is allowed organically, but it's just your plants hate it. They don't want to be covered in oil. You know, they did. They just don't. I mean, if anyone knows their plants, yeah, it might kill the bugs, but their plants don't like it. So finding that happy medium of a really healthy immune system with these anti-pathogen sprays that also boost the plant's immune system and deter bugs. That's kind of where I'm at with my IPM. Now, with that said, because I do caretake for some people, if someone's going to say, hey, I just got this cut from my buddy and I want to introduce this into my closet, you know, my, my grow closet, I'm, you know, red flags go up with me. So, you know, that's when I will pull out some oil. That's when I will pull out some canola oil or I'll get into some potassium silicate and, and those kind of things just to make sure like that the, they're, those things are dead. You know, powdery mildew was a huge issue last year. I'm like, I'm not looking to bring any systemic fungi into my care, you know, these people I caretake for's rooms. So there is a place where I'm not worried about what the plant really likes. I'm just worried about what's going to get the, the pest out of there. But from there, you're trying to build a healthy immune system. I'm a huge fan of putting um, biologicals on my leaves and veg 
um, just to make it less hospitable to critters and fungi and whatever wants to make its way in there. Um, a huge fan. That's why, you know, I use the compost teas as well. If you can just out compete the nasty ones with beneficial ones, um, then you're, you know, you're, you're hopefully going to, you're not going to ever stop them, but you're going to keep them at a, at a, at a, um, a point where you can still produce a, a great product. All right. Well, listen, it is, I hope, um, I hope that answered, I hope that answered some of your IPM. I hope that answered something. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I wasn't really looking for anything specific. I think you touched upon just like a good, nice, broad, you know, your, your, uh, you know, philosophy and then also maybe a little bit of what you guys do. I do want to stop and say coming up on, um, eight, it's like seven forty-eight. So, uh, we are approaching sort of the question answer you guys. So please feel free to raise your hand. Um, between now and uh, when we close out in a little bit. Um, if you have any questions, then we will let you guys talk um, at any point while we're talking, go ahead. Uh, and if um, you can't, uh, if you don't wanna talk, uh, you're more than welcome to just use our chat. Uh, so we've got a couple ways to get your thoughts and your questions into the conversation, either for both of us or for Sean, um, grow questions, policy questions, whatever you guys want. Um, raise your hand or use the chat, uh, and uh, we will call on you guys. Uh, I do have a question for you, Sean. I don't want to shift too hard here, but this is something of uh, sort of my coming from me. So, my question to you, dude, is um, go into a little bit of the that Hetty Vermont experience. How was that for you? Um, and by the way, Rip Hetty Vermont, those are some you know, they, they definitely had a place in our community and they, they helped forge, especially with Eli back in the day, the start of the Vermont cannabis community from an organized perspective. So much appreciation to a lot of what they did back then, especially their cup. But uh, so you were, you were a winner, dude. <laughs> That's awesome. You guys ranked. So, so how was that? What'd you win? And, and how was that for you guys? Yeah. Well, we were just excited. You know, we just wanted to participate just because, you know, Vermont, you know, they, you know, Hedy Vermont put themselves out there um, with Eli and, and Monica, you know, shots out to both of them. Um, we just wanted to be participants. I think, you know, the first year we went into it, just being like, what's this going to be like, you know, <laughs> you know, it's legal, but like when we submit and we show up, like who's going to be there? <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. So you guys were in the first year. Cause I know it was a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, yeah. We put in for that. We put in the first year. Um, <laughs> and so it, it, when we, we, we came close to first year. So, we're like, you know, we just got to keep doing this, not so much for ourselves, but just for the community, because I just wanted to see a bunch of in my in, in my opinion, as someone who's lived a bunch of places, I feel like Vermont, and I could be totally wrong, has the most, you know, cannabis enthusiasts and cannabis growers per capita in the country. And I feel like to, I, I personally just really wanted to see like what Vermont had to show um, and you know, we went into it, not, not hoping to win anything, but you know, we, we love what we, you know, we're, we're enthusiasts. We love, um, you know, we love cannabis and we've worked really hard for our, our patients and, you know, who we caretake for to, you know, build some genetics that really help people. And luckily the judges uh, enjoyed that sativa that we sent them. But uh, if, if Monica is willing to run another one, we'd love to submit again. That would be great. That's awesome. So what did you guys submit? Uh, I submitted, it's like a really funny story, but I submitted a super lemon haze that I helped one of my patients grow. 
And um, I've just kept that in the arsenal for, you know, I've had that for over 15 years just with me, just because it's just such a, uh, it's just such an energetic, clear headed, cerebral strain that for people, especially that grew up with the taboo of cannabis, their brain pathway, unfortunately, goes immediately to paranoia. And that's due to legal, you know, that's due to the laws and that's due to the, sure. you know, the criminalization. And I try to tell people that if it wasn't illegal, that wouldn't be your mindset. But this is just one of those strains that just really suppresses that in some of my elderly um, friends. And I was, uh, yeah, it just was a good round and it came through well and we submitted it and it, and it worked. But um, yeah, we try to stick with a lot of those strains. Um, I've done plenty of cushes, um, with some of my patients and especially those that need for need sleep, but I've seen the most in the patients that have these high, um, sativa, uh, silver haze, super silver, super lemon haze, um, Durban poisons, those kind of strains. Um, I've seen a lot of great benefit people, a lot of great results with those strains. So I'm glad that it scored well and. We'll submit something new next year. Awesome. Awesome. It's awesome that uh, you uh, you guys not only ranked, but, uh, you know, um, you were able to, at that point, you know, so early on sort of help contribute to the community because I know it's definitely not easy. You know, um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of risk, um, oh, you know, totally. for a lot of us. <laughs> I mean, just dropping it off was the was just in itself. <laughs> I mean, they're sitting with boxes of jars, you know, boxes upon boxes it's like oh so i yeah we just wanted to be part of the community you know it wasn't necessarily about winning but it is oh you know as my wife said it it is sort of nice to know like what you're doing um people people are enjoying it all right yeah we've got a, an attendee with their hand up so we're gonna let jobena speak with us um and i hope i pronounce your your name properly um you should now be able to speak are you with us Yes. Um, All right. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm just starting out. I, I don't have like anything in the ground, um, but uh, I saw that they were going to be um, allowing like uh, applications for licenses next year. And I was wondering, do you have to have um, your product already, like your plants grown and everything before you get your license? Or is this like something once you get your license, you're allowed to grow. The latter, I would say, Jeffrey, you may know better, better than me, but the latter, you're going to need the license before they allow you to even touch a cannabis plant, I would imagine. Okay. Yes. And well, well, it's interesting. So really, really great question. Um, and by the way, would you mind, would you mind pronouncing your first name for us? I'm sorry. I just want to make sure. I... My first name is Jobani. Oh, awesome. Jobani, thank you for joining us. Um, so yeah, I would say, so you're asking about Act 164 um, and licensing. So the only license that we sort of have defined for us presently uh, for production really is the craft cultivation license. So uh, for that license, there is no criteria for growing. Um, so you do not have to have plants in the ground at all. Um, that is not a criteria. Though I will say the application process for that license is not yet totally de uh, defined in statute. Um, that's one thing that the CCD, the CCB is tasked with. 
So yes. we should know more details about our licensing process and the license itself. We should know more by October. Okay. Um, and I mean like, you know, in concrete. So as yep. of right now, I can also say one thing that's unique that is in the law is Act 164 allows the craft cultivation license an initial, uh, it's sort of an initial sell. So the first purchase theoretically does not need to be seed to sale tracked, which is unique and it can come from anywhere. So it's kind of, it sort of creates this sort of gray area of no questions asked. So theoretically or hypothetically that creates a scenario where you can all of a sudden have a craft cultivator who, you know, a Vermonter, I should say, who just got issued a successful craft cultivation license that then legally allows them to sell um, wholesale to a integrated license holder immediately in, uh, in May, in October, um, an unknown quantity, several pounds. Okay, you wow. Know, so that, that's sort of interesting. That's a, that's a gray area. Um, right. So, you know, um, I know Vermont Cannabis Solutions and others have unpacked that a little bit. So after that though, for instance, subsequent um, uh, uh, any, sort of, any sort of product that gets moved through you needs to be managed and whatnot. Um, so, so there is regulation. Um, we're trying to make it accessible. I'll also add, great question, things are still fluid. We have about 11 months still of formation. So these things can change and we can actually introduce and the CCB is tasked with writing more licenses for us. So this will be a, a bigger conversation soon. Yeah, I saw that they said they were gonna try to like um, help out the small scale growers. I, I, that, that's my second question. Like what oh, exactly sure. is a small scale grower? Like I'm, I'm renting out a property that has about two acres that I can use. I know that's not a lot like in Vermont, but you know, it's my first time having land. So what do they consider small scale? That's a good question. Um, as of this moment, um, that that has yet to be sort of determined. I'll say it's only really being defined in statute by the 1,000 square foot canopy size for oh. the craft cultivation license. So that right now is going to be our baseline cultivation okay. here as of this moment. Okay, that works. Thank you. No problem. Appreciate the questions. All right. Um, and anyone else, uh, you guys feel free to raise your hands and uh, we will let you guys speak as well. So thank you, Giovanni. That was awesome. Sweet. All right. Um, yeah, Sean. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you want to add to anything um, that uh, was brought up. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, um, licenses are definitely on people's minds. Yeah, I, I, I was going to just add on to that, what you just said. Um, is it my understanding that say if 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 i wanted to get into craft it'd be a craft cultivator that i would apply by april and i would know by may or like maybe something like that right so so that i wouldn't then as a vermont resident be allowed to have any more than the four allowed plants correct right until that i get that license approved Correct. Okay. And, and, and just one other clarification too, as far as the dispensaries though, 
when are they going to have the green light for retail? Is that October of this year? In state statute, Act 164 says they may, first of all, their, uh, the, their dispensary medical permit uh, dissolves and their rec license um, regulation becomes enabled in February. So that's exactly 90 days from May. May is when they're able to retail. May. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks for the clarification there. And Absolutely. Then, I'll, let me add to that, though. Yeah. If, you don't, if, I, if I don't mind, I'll jump in. We wrote retail opt-in language. You know how we're an opt-in state. So that means which that a front, count, which means that just for retail, which means that if a town right now, no, no town in Vermont, no town may sell cannabis. You can grow it. You can process it. Every other license type cannot be managed by a locality. Only the retail license has um, sort of certain controls at the local level. Um, so a town needs to opt in. So. Um, if a town opts, opts in using our opt-in language that we wrote, we remove the five-month retail head start. So dispensaries, for instance, in Burlington, in Danville, in Waterbury, we're trying to get it passed in Essex and Colchester, they cannot sell in May. They must start when everyone else can, can begin in, in October. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so that's just us attempting to level the playing field, which should have been at the state level, you know. Agreed. Agreed. And and you also make a clear also just to clarify that is only a retail opt in. So right. can a town, can a municipality then set zoning on where cultivation can occur? That is an excellent question. So that's actually, I'll be honest with you, Sean, something we are researching right now with the leagues of towns and cities together, our coalition um, is looking into this. And yes, from what we've heard so far. There are some towns, for instance, that, so why is this a reason? This, this is an issue because um, cannabis cultivation is zoned as commercial activity in Act 164, something that we're against. We, yes. we don't think it should be zoned at anything at the state level. Um, leave it up to localities or if anything, keep it ag. Um, yes. That being said, because it's commercial, commercial zones vary per municipality. So in some towns, they can restrict, for instance, commercial activity to downtown and certain areas. That means a farm would obviously be prohibited from that area. Yep. So it's to be determined and it will vary on a case-by-case -case basis. And in addition to that, we hope to remove these overbearing regulations. So that's how I'd respond to that. We have some hands up. Uh, I just wanna make sure other people get into the conversation. Um, we're going to let Green Soul uh, speak. So you've had your hand up for a bit. Let's see here. All right. Looks like we lost Green Soul. All right. Sorry about that, guys. All righty. Um, We've got, uh, looks like Giovanni still has uh, a question, um, unless your hand is up. Um, let's see here. And if Green Soul joins us again, um, oh, there's Green Soul. Let's see here. I'll let you speak. Sorry about that, guys. 
green soul is gone again. All right, so we're just going to go over to Giovanni again. Um, all right, are you there with us? Yes. Okay. okay. Um, if you're considered a small scale grower, like on this property, um, it's it's a residential area, and if I were to grow, it's strictly like small scale. But um, how could they also uh, mark you as a commercial operation? Is that like does that work? That's the that's what we have to iron out. Yes, I mean, immediately I'll say residential can't be commercial. So if you want to participate in this market, you can't, um, you know, you can't do it from a residence oh. as of this moment. And that, that's, that's being a producer. I will say we're trying to change that. So for instance, in our, this, you know, this isn't really a policy discussion, but I really appreciate the question. One of the, for instance, we know they need to write more licenses. So one of the licenses that we wrote and defined and we're, we proposed it's called a um, farm direct sale license. So it's like an integrated license type for farms. So instead of ha having farmers buy, say, six different licenses, which can become costly to effectively, you know, do what these dispensaries do, they can buy themselves a one license shop as well. And that allows basically their residency where they live, um, but also it mirrors cheese and vegetables and sort of farm stands, how we allow that. Um, so that's sort of what we're, we're hoping for. Um, Canada and other sort of more innovative areas in the adult use space are allowing direct sales from farms directly. And we're hoping that Vermont moves in that direction. So that would be similar to what you're describing, but I would say as this moment, if you want to say start, um, you know, uh, a cultivation business legally come May, you would need to get a commercial uh, property. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have one other question. That one just came up because of what you guys were saying. Um, sure. For for Sean, what, does he grow things in winter, like like using like maybe a double tunnel or something like that? Ooh, good question. Uh, I'm gonna say winter, no. Um, okay. However, can you pull off multiple harvests in a season? Sure. Uh, that's gonna require some kind of light deprivation greenhouse, um, which I think plays a role in Vermont. Um, as someone who has slightly little experience with it, um, you're going to have to find the right strains that can do light deprivation, but that would be, you know, say you get, say you get some plants in the ground by March, you might be able to flower them come April harvest them by July, get another crop in the ground that you start flowering, then harvest that at the end of August, you might be able then be able, or is that September? And then you might be able to get one more harvest that could get you to November. So there are ways, and I think Vermonters have to be clever about how to get some multiple harvests using the sun, but it re requires some light deprivation greenhousing. Okay. I, I plan on being, my whole thing is to be a wholesale flower farmer so, but uh that's why i like this i i i even tuned into this one um but i also would like to grow uh cannabis and i intend on using the you know double polytunnels or whatever and and lights to to do it so hopefully it works Awesome. 
Awesome. Growing anything is exciting. Yes, it is. <laughs> Sean, were you say something? Uh, no, no. I, 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 just, just, I just think you need to keep in mind that it's a light-dependent plant. So when, yes. you, when you start planning your harvest, just know that it, it does require the 12-hour dark period. Um, and that's interesting. Uh, light depth is uh, so maybe, maybe break that down um, for those uh, just very, very briefly. So, um, yeah, I could real quick. So, you buy greenhouse, yep. Yeah, you buy a package of tomatoes, it tells you how many days it needs to grow. That's not how cannabis works. The way cannabis works is it needs a certain amount of darkness to trigger the flowering hormone to produce the flowers that we seek. So unless you have a certain, and I believe for most strains, we, we shoot for 12 hours. Um, if you don't have a 12 hour dark period, you are not going to initiate flower. So starting them in the spring, you're still not going to harvest those plants till the fall under normal lights. So you're going to have to get clever and do your research on how to manipulate the lighting so that you can actually have the plant go into flowering and have a harvest, if that makes sense. And so it sounds like that extends through growing season as well, right? So it could theoretically at least. Yeah, it, I, I think it certainly plays a part. It's very labor intensive and there's a lot of, yep. of automation out there that these larger dispensaries are certainly gonna take advantage of. But I, I think Vermont's future is using the sun just because I've seen what can be produced with sun, but knowing that we are not a very sunny place. So having light sensors um, with triggered um, LED lighting, I think is absolutely where we should be moving. Regenerative organic gardening techniques in a climate controlled outdoor greenhouse is where um, I'm keeping my eyes on. So we've got a question from Mike. Um, it sort of does go back to policy a little bit, but I think that's fine. So Mike asks, I just want to make sure everyone has a chance. Um, he says, Sean, uh, what are your feelings? What are your feelings on the adult use rollout right now in Vermont, especially as a cultivator? Yeah, you know, it depends on the day. Um, I'm super yeah. excited that I think, for, you know, talking to some of the people in the Vermont Congress that this is going to work, but I also know that you can never underestimate the power of big ag. And I think we're seeing with consolidations here and big money coming into the state that, you know, I'm, I'm not very optimistic. I think, um, I think I'm going to be allowed to produce legally, which would be just so great for me and my family. Um, I, I'm scared of where I may be able to sell it. Um, I know that right now there will be retail locations and that would involve me um, having to make those connections to sell it at retail. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm just a little nervous at the lobbying power that these big companies are going to have, but I'm also optimistic that Vermont's Congress folks are sensible. So I'm sort of depending on the day <laughs> right in the middle. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, 
And I think it's okay to be uh, hopeful and optimistic because, um, you know, especially if, you know, there's, we're all busy. Um, part of our job at Vermont Growers Association is to keep our, you know, our ear to the ground. So uh, all the farmers in the field and all the growers in the rooms and people who are doing their thing, grinding, we provide you with that information. And I'll say this, the Cannabis Control Board is another opportunity, not just that could sort of go wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that, but it's also another opportunity where it can go right. Um, yeah, you, you've, you've got to feel optimistic at this point. Um, we have to be cautiously optimistic just because yes. big money talks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I also think that these companies are not after Vermont. They're after the, they're after new England and they're just going to view us as just one big state and try to try to take over. Um, Cause there's not enough money to be made in Vermont. Yeah. There's, there's money, there's tourism, but I, they're going to have to, they're going to, in my opinion, they're going to want to gobble up a lot of new England's as, as other States come online. See, uh, we have um, we have Green Soul with us. Uh, I'll try and let's see here. You did ask an excellent question. Um, we did bring it in the conversation, Green Soul. If you do want to ask or join, um, and I will turn to your question. Let's see here. All right. Uh, if you wish, if you wish, you can uh, hop on your. You can turn on your mic. It's up to you. Um, let's see here. It's another question about uh, uh, licensing. Um, will the cultivation license be similar to Maine's caregiver growing amounts? Um, will anyone be able? Uh, will anyone be able to be approved for a cultivation license with proper? commercial land approval, et cetera? Is it a lottery or a limit on how many they will be, uh, they will approve or for approval on the licenses? Appreciate your knowledge and the fight to allow. We appreciate you. Um, we don't know that information, man. Uh, so uh, everybody, Green Soul was asking about um, licensing specifically um, and no problem. And uh, you can see their question in the chat. Um, and they're asking if it's going to be similar to Maine's as well. We don't know that. We're advocating for it to be similar to Maine's uh, green soil, um, which means, guys, that um, the licensing process is very accessible. Um, we want to have a le level playing field. Uh, and at least in maybe the first couple of years, some regulation on production to ensure that we're not taken advantage of. Um, and that sort of regulation and production can help prevent large businesses from um, investing in our state inappropriately. So for instance, we all know with this acquisition, um, Champlain Valley Dispensary or a series is talking about a 78,000 square foot indoor facility. Um, if we had, for instance, production caps, they would not be interested in setting up that large facility. You know, they would be restricted to 10,000 square feet. Um, so that's what uh, we're seeking. Um, Maine also has more uh, uh, a larger plant allowance, so they can grow um, up to ten plants, and they can also grow for multiple patients. So they have a five patient allowance per caregiver. So that basically turns their medical program into a small business 
um, sort of mini market. And it's doing pretty well. Um, I'm glad that they were able to defend that. Um, but yeah, Green Soul to bring it back to Vermont. We don't know. We don't know um, those I, details. Go ahead. I mean, the yeah, old, the old, yeah, just to just to chime in to Green Soul's question. I think, I mean, what we can go off of right now is how, and, and Jeffrey, you may want to argue this with me, but is how we rolled out the medical dispensary program. I, I'm assuming that it will not be unlimited although I have seen that language, my assumption based on just experience is that it will be potentially an application and a point system, just like they did with the medical dispensaries and that, um, that applicants will be scored. Now, the question I have to jump on that is, okay, let's say that 100 places are allowed in Burlington. Now, does the state work with the city to say, oh, how many do you guys want? We got 100 approved. Like, it, the, it's, it seems messy to me. Like, I can be approved by the state potentially, but will my town allow us if there's four people competing with you? So I don't, does, I don't know where it's going to go, but I, I'm... I'm thinking some kind of a point system. Jeffrey, I don't know if you have a comment on that. We will probably, you know, um, if we don't get our reforms underway, yes, Sean, I would say that absolutely we, we should expect um, a similar application process to what we see in other states that have passed a similar uh, law as S-54 or Act 164 in that there is limited licensing and a point-based system. Um, and yes, outside of its criticisms, if that were to occur, um, we would look at, um, you know, the clarity between state and local control is also relevant here. Um, and I'll say this, there is some of this is laid out in 164. So we do know, we do know for the application process for us, uh, we must first obtain a local license or permit if one is required. So Act 164, like many states, requires localities or your town or city to have a license themselves if they want and their own control board. And you need to get that first. Okay. If you have that in your area to then get the state license. So before you apply, um, you would maybe need a letter from your select board signing off on allowing you to be a cultivator in the town. Whatever you, my, my response would be, it depends upon what your town does. So whatever your town does, um, and if they, you know, theoretically, if they do nothing, then you would not need anything. But also on the other end of that, if they say set up their own CCB and they're allowed to, similar to how some towns have like, uh, they're on the liquor control board, um, then you need to go through a local permitting process first. Then it would be methodical. So hmm. it, it varies, varies per town. Okay. Okay. Yeah. If, if, if I go off my medical dispensary application experience, you needed, you needed an okay from the town. You needed an okay from the landlord. If you were going to be at a, at a site that was not, that was not owned by yes. you, all of that will add up to your score on this point system. Uh, not to say that's how it will go, but that's just how it was. Yes, exactly. I think to expect something similar would be, 
would might would not be too far off from the from the truth. I will say this: uh, one of the things that we're fighting for, and I want to be mindful of time, is um, it's really important for us for cannabis to be considered an agricultural product because we want uh, uh, origin of Appalachian uh, to occur in our state, which, guys, is policy that allows regional identification. Uh, and that's we think, speaks to a craft marketplace. So think about how you buy wine or coffee and that has a location of where it was from. We want cannabis to be like that. We know for a fact in our communications with other state organizations like in Humboldt, we're really close with Humboldt County Growers Alliance. They're fighting for a place of origin as well. Um, so this is one thing that's going to set us apart when we go federal is high quality cannabis. Sean, do you think that like there's relevancy and space in Vermont for that sort of policy. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the only the only difference you have between Humble, um, shout out to Humble Sea Company, my good buddy, he's running that show. Um, HSO. Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. Uh, Nat is Nat Pennington, man. Shout out that guy has just built an empire, and I much love and respect to what he's doing. Um, it, it's it's different. We yeah, it's different in the sense that those those growers out there are committed to the sun and the soil, and a lot of the best Vermont product is reliant on high electric bills and soilless media. So that's so we need to. I agree with what you're saying, but I don't know if we produce a unique product if we're just growing in soilless media grown you know shipped to us from across the country under lights that everyone in the country has so to create that unique place of origin would require sun and soil if that makes sense absolutely it would probably only be an outdoor um designation yes yes i'm not against a greenhouse but I don't I, I, I don't think you can produce that marketplace in a sealed, sterile lab indoors. I mean, not to say great products don't come out of that. It's just that place of origin contradiction exists then. Absolutely. Absolutely. It needs to have all those outside characteristics. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Otherwise, I don't think it would qualify for a place of origin. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Just want to be oh, clear because no, Vermont is a heavy indoor um, production. Not to say that incredible outdoor is not happening, but 99.9% of the best cannabis I've seen in Vermont is indoor. If, if you don't mind, was that, was your submission in 2019 indoor or full It was, it was indoor. Oh, okay. And, and much, and much respect for the outdoor winners. Yeah. Much respect. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, Everyone needs to be included in the marketplace. That's, you know, from our organizational perspective, right? Everyone does. Um, and then uh, and then we'll go from there. But uh, I think that um, to single out any sort of, you know, practice as the law does right now, it's very difficult for people to grow outside. Um, it's not farmer friendly. So uh, we need to make sure that it is. We're an agrarian state. Agreed. Um, let's see, more questions. Green Soul, when when may we see more detailed languages in the bills moving forward? Uh, so bills, uh, January is when the session starts. 
Uh, and again, Green Soul, I would say the next major milestone for us to look out for is with the CCB, they have to report on licensing, advertising, and lots of things that we're waiting for, not everything, but a lot of it in October. So that's the next major milestone. The legislature is not in session right now. We were from January to about May this year. Next year, uh, we should go from January to about June or July. We had an abbreviated session this year because of COVID and everything. So that's where we're at. Um, all right, uh, let's see here. Any other questions? All right, excellent. Well, that was awesome. Um, I really appreciate your time. We're like way over, it's almost 8.30, so. <laughs> Um, well, someone's got their hand up. All right. I don't know uh, if you did not uh, lower it, uh, but we will give you the chance to talk before we close out. Uh, Giovanni, you've got your, um, are you with us? Hi, uh, sorry, I have I always lots of questions here, but um, this is not a policy question at all. This is a, a product. And no problem if it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so if I, uh, also have an interest in um, cigar development because my grandparents grew their own tobacco and sold it. Um, if I am developing like the, the or, or growing the filler, binder and wrapper, is there any way that uh, cannabis can become part of either the filler or the binder in a cigar? Yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, th that would to be determined uh, in terms of the regulation that nuance would be um, figured out by the CCB and our state house in the coming 11 months. We don't know. We don't know. Oh. I would say that in other states, just to just to you know provide some context, it's uncommon so far to date to see the combination of sort of alcohol and tobacco with THC. It's usually kept pretty separate. Wait, this is... Oh, okay, yeah, tobacco, got it. Other okay. states, yeah. Oh, yep. yes, and the rum used in the in the curing, forget it. I'm breaking like 30 laws. Okay. It, you yeah. know, we're, we're still getting, we're getting there, I think, from a regulatory standpoint. Um, things are, over the past year or so have become a lot more relaxed and sort of a little bit more progressive, but, um, but by and large, uh, it's still pretty, pretty tight, especially when it comes to sort of combining THC or cannabis with other, controlled substances, you know, um, okay. or, or alcohol and tobacco, I shouldn't say. I don't think they're controlled substances. So, you know, the lobbyists won that fight. Oh, the rum <laughs> is just using the flavor. But hey, okay. Let's not yep. break too many laws at once. No, I'm with you. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Sean, anything to add? No, I was just going to tell her you might want to wait 20 years on that, on that uh, business idea. Right. <laughs> Combining awesome. tobacco and cannabis in Vermont, oh boy! <laughs> we have THC caps. We're, we're trying to get those removed. Yeah, it's like one 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 battle at a time. But I like where your head's at. Yeah, Don't that's awesome. Wrong. Absolutely, we should be exporting that uh, when we go federal. Great, great idea. Well, listen, I appreciate everyone joining us, Sean. Um, any last words? Thank you for joining us. This has been, I think, a fantastic conversation, man. Top down. Yeah, I mean, if I'm, you know, like I said in the beginning, I'm an educator. So if, if anybody, I just like to help people. So I came on the show trying to um, just tell people what we're about and hopefully um, help people along their journey if they fall down the wormhole of organic cultivation. 
And uh, you can reach us at Kismet Farm Vermont anytime on Instagram or email. That's at gmail.com if you're trying to reach us there. And, um, you know, this is a conversation I can talk about for every day, every day of, of uh, my life here. So, Jeffrey, I appreciate the opportunity and appreciate the fight. And as you said earlier, being the, you know, as people have their heads down in their rooms and in their gardens and in their farms that you're doing the hard work and getting us the information we need. So thank you. Well, thank you. And really appreciate it because it's a, it's a communal thing. So we're all in this together. We're, you know, four producers, by producers here. So I appreciate you, dude. And Megan, uh, you guys continue to rock. Um, and you guys are what at Instagram Kismet Farm Vermont. Yep. That's us. Awesome. You guys check out their page. They've got some beautiful photos of flowers and some plants and their inputs and their beautiful labs. And uh, we got to get you on again, man. Yeah, man. Anytime. Um, um, if it's if it's cannabis, um, just think of us. We're, we're all about it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Sean, have a nice night. All right. You too, man. Take care. Yeah.